Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. This is Anthology. And welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's first golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each podcast, I share my thoughts on an episode of this iconic series as a first-time viewer, as well as share some trivia about the episode. I then end each podcast with a bonus review of a movie or show related to the week's episode. You can find more of Anthology at AnthologyPod.com, and if you want to contact me, you can like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod. You can tweet me at ObsessiveViewer, or you can send me an email at Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com. Or finally, you can call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, the easiest way to do that is by going over to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews I get, the easier it will be for people to find the show in iTunes' search results and climb the podcasting ranks in the highly competitive TV and film podcast category. And if you're feeling particularly generous and want to support Anthology with your wallet, there's a donate button on AnthologyPod.com and a link in the show notes of this episode, which can be found at AnthologyPod.com slash 028. Every donation made will go directly toward uh, paying the bills and fees to keep the podcast running and is unbelievably appreciated. Today on the podcast, I'll be discussing Mr. Beavis. It's the 33rd episode of The Twilight Zone's first season, and it aired on June 3rd, 1960. And for this week's bonus review, I'll share my thoughts on The 27th Day, a 1957 sci-fi film directed by Mr. Beavis director William Asher. And as usual, I'll start out the episode with a uh, summary of the plot courtesy of the Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Zakree. And just so you know, if you haven't seen the episode yet and you don't want to be spo- don't want to be spoiled, um please stop listening right now. Um go check it out on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, and uh DVD wherever. Um and then come back and listen because the plot summary and the review that follows are going to be completely spoiler heavy. Um so yeah. After losing his job, wrecking his car, and being being evicted from his apartment all on the same day, Beavis makes the acquaintance of guardian angel J. Hardy Hempstead, who, thanks to an act of courage on the part of one of Beavis's ancestors, is obliged to render his assistance. He arranges that Beavis start the day over, but with a difference. This time, Beavis is a, su- is a success in his job. His rent is paid in advance, and his mode of transportation, instead of being a 1924 jalopy, is a flashy sports car. There are drawbacks, however. In order to have a new life, there must be a new Beavis. No more loud clothes, no more Zyther music, no more model shipbuilding. Worst of all, Beavis can no longer be the well-liked neighborhood oddball. Realizing that, for him, happiness lies in eccentricity, Beavis asks that asks to be returned to the way he was before broke, jobless, and with no place to live. Hempstead, compi- uh, 
Hempstead complies, but he arranges for Beavis's jalopy to be given back to him undamaged. He is still Beavis's guardian angel and will continue to help him in small ways. Starring in this episode as James B.W. Beavis is Orson Bean. Uh, this is his only episode of The Twilight Zone and probably best known for his role as Lauren Bray um, in Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. And he's still working today, actually, and that's pretty impressive. He was recently in an episode of Modern Family. I believe it was called Playdate. And a little piece of trivia about um, Orson Bean, he was actually blacklisted in the 1950s. Co-starring as his guardian angel, J. Hardy Hempstead, is Henry Jones. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, he did appear in two episodes of Tales of Tomorrow back in 1952 and 1953. And he was also in an episode of Way Out, uh, Roald Dahl's anthology show in 1961. And uh, Brandon over at Submitted for Your Approval, he just actually just shared an article about Way Out uh, that he found online that uh, was really interesting. It kind of, kind of about the, not legacy of it, but, but the potential about how it's so un, un, underknown, um, if that's a phrasing of it. But I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to check it out. And I found out that through that article that a lot of the episodes of Way Out are actually available on YouTube. So that's pretty cool. Um, Henry Jones also appeared in one episode of Night Gallery. And he, his most recognizable role was as a coroner in Hitchcock's Vertigo, which is a movie that I need to see again. I haven't seen it since uh, college, but it's Hitchcock. So, I mean, it's, it's awesome. And rounding out the cast as uh, Beavis's boss, Mr. Peckinpah is Charles Lane. This was his only episode of the Twilight Zone. And um, I couldn't really find much in terms of uh, noteworthy roles, I, he had a he had a big career, like a long career, um, just nothing that really stood out in in my uh, millennial memory. But um, he was a, a good piece of trivia is that he was one of the first actors to join the Screen Actors Guild, so that was pretty interesting. And writer for this episode is Rod Serling, who originally intended that the episode be a uh, pilot for a series called Beavis. And he wanted uh, Burgess Meredith to be in the title role, uh, but Burgess Meredith turned it down because because uh, he couldn't he didn't want to commit himself to a full series. And when he turned it down, Serling decided to just go ahead and uh, uh, film it as kind of a one shot Twilight Zone episode. And that's when they cast Orson Bean as as Beavis. And I guess the original idea for the show was that it was going to be a, uh, it was going to be a weekly show where the angel, uh, where the angel would get Beavis out of different, uh, situations, um, week to week. And, ah, uh, you know, spoiler for my review, but I'm kind of glad that that never really happened. I don't really see that being, um, an interesting concept for, for a show. And it didn't really come through in, in the episode. But I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, director for the episode is William Asher. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone that he directed. And uh, let's see, a little piece of trivia about him. He served in the U.S. Army Signals Corps from 1941 to 1945, uh, where he was stationed in New York as a unit photographer. And he actually got his start in Hollywood working in a mailroom at Universal Studios. So that's kind of that's kind of neat. It's, it's a nice, like... Uh, uh, you know, 
not cliche, but it's it's the kind of story that you hear all the time. Like, oh, starting in the mailroom and just working your way up, and he worked his way up to um, what I imagine is a successful directing career. So, Mr. Beavis, um, now we've come to the part where I talk about my feelings as a as a first time viewer of it, and what I knew what I knew beforehand going into it was absolutely nothing, and um from the outset in my notes for, for what I knew before watching the episode was that it, uh, the title reminds me of Henry Bemis and from time enough at last. And I don't think that's by accident because this was, um, a script that Serling wrote with Burgess Meredith in mind kind of has this kooky character at the, at the start of it. Not to say that it it's supposed to be Henry Bemis or anything, but, um, just saying that, that, I feel like this was intentional, uh, maybe a little wink at, at a past episode when it was going to be, um, when it was going to be a series with Burgess Meredith. And immediately what I, um, obviously immediately what I noticed is that, is that there's a new intro, uh, with an eyeball instead of the little cavern, uh, thing that's been going on throughout the whole first season. And, uh, I was I was wondering if this was the opening for season two, but I don't believe so. Um, I'll get to that in the trivia, but I don't think it's the opening for season two. I'm actually really excited to see what season two intro is like because I know that they changed it. I think I've said that before on the podcast. I don't remember. I've done so many of these, but I kind of wonder why it was changed for this one. I can't really find anything to to tell me why it was changed. I've looked I've looked around. And I can't find any information on it, but I kind of wondered if it was to shorten the intro maybe a little bit, but that's all I can think of. But after that short intro, we get an opening shot as an establish uh, an establishing shot of a city street, uh, kids playing sun shining. It looks like summer. Uh, there's a, a street car with a goofy monkey that's climbing a light, uh, a light pole. And it's, I mean, it looks like a, it looks like a New York city street. Um, I assume that it was filmed on a back lot or, or what have you, but, um, I still really like that it, that, uh, that it, that's what we open with. It, it feels like as of late in this, like later half of the, uh, first season of the Twilight Zone, it feels like we haven't had like a sunny outdoor scene like that or a sunny, like kind of upbeat outdoor scene in that way. So, so opening the episode with in that way was kind of refreshing to me. And then we get our introduction to, James B.W. Beavis. And um, <laughs> Serling's narration just describes him as an oddball in the uh, uh, par- uh, parlance of the 21st century. And he says that Beavis lives a life with all the security of a floating crap game. And he describes him as being kind of vague and, and accident prone and just all around an eccentric character. And I kind of wonder, and I'm getting kind of ahead of, ahead of myself here, but I kind of wonder if I didn't necessarily take to this episode or to the character. I don't, I wonder if I, the reason I didn't connect with him or the story is, uh, because his specific quirks and eccentricities are what define him more than his personality or, uh, more than, more than what he does. It's, it's more about the, the quirks and habits and, and 
interests that he has rather than his actions or the way that he's performed. I don't know if that's a script writing issue with, with Serling's script, or I don't know if that's an Orson Bean issue with his performance, but I feel like on one side of it, someone didn't really bring their A game to it. And I'm wanting to say that Orson Bean didn't really bring much to the role, um, as what was written on the page. Um, there's some kind of, there's some kind of, um, physical things that he does, like physical, like actions that he does, but it's not anything that informs the, the character, um, himself, except for to reinforce the quirky and eccentric, um, qualities of him. And it's, it just failed to connect with me, um, early on in the episode. And that, uh, kind of was a failing for, for me the rest of the way. And Serling in the opening narration just tells us that Beavis likes certain things and lives this kooky, uh, lifestyle of, uh, a, a discombobulated um, lifestyle, but the most characterization that we get from Beavis in terms of development or his motivations is the, just that he just doesn't fit into the alternate take on his life that his guardian angel shows him. And that, that just feels like there's no why to it. It's just, he's a man who likes certain things and, and I mean, that's fine, but it's just, I don't know. It just, it just didn't really work for me. So Beavis is going to work and we get this, this scene where he's, he leaves his, he leaves his apartment. He walks down the stairs. He does all these things. They're all set up to, um, to be called back later, which is funny because I just talked last week on the podcast about how, uh, Joey crown in a passage for trumpet, like we didn't get the, we didn't get the breadcrumb introduction scenes, um, of him meeting the people that he, uh, sees every day. And then, and then when he's in his limbo, he doesn't see him. Like we get this really powerful, uh, monologue where he talks about his, his pain and everything here. Ironically, we get, we get, you know, the breadcrumbs, we get the scenes where he, like, he picks up the dog, he waves, waves hello to, uh, the, his neighbor. He goes, goes outside, plays with the kids, grabs the apple, gets in his car and leaves. And then we get that repeated as him being a normal or, or regular person. And it's effective in this story because there's not really much to the story. There's not really much to the character to really dive into him as a character piece the way that it was for Joey Crown and Jack Klugman in A Passage for Trumpet. And that's what is kind of uh, disappointing to me on on a few levels because I couldn't really connect to Beavis. And um, that was a failing of the episode for me. But having said that, when he goes uh, down the stairs... And then he, he slides down the, uh, the, the, uh, the railing for, for the stairs. Um, that I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say this as a man (laughs) that hurt to watch. Like I like, Oh, that, that looked painful. Um, I don't, yeah. Oh, oh, like it, it hurt anyway. Um, but he's he's kind of a happy look uh happy go lucky guy like he he doesn't uh he doesn't seem affected by anything he's just he's just happy to be himself and living and that's kind of the point of the episode is that it's at its heart it's kind of it feels like it's a little bit about conformity or it's saying that we shouldn't sacrifice our identity to conform to what other people want or expect us to be which is a 
which is a pretty noble message and it's it's really it's a good message to to convey in a show um such as this but the execution of it just did not work for me which i keep saying <laughs> so yeah it it just didn't work for me and the show keeps reinforcing the fact that he is this oddball he's this weird character he drives a 1924 Rickenbacker Rickenbacker and he has stuffed animals all over his desks uh, all over his desk and he has this weird clock thing that has its eyes moving and and stuff but all that is just a matter of of taste or or a matter of all those are are just informing his interest and in, in his hobbies and in what he's like in terms of just what uh he's interested in it doesn't really say much about his character or like what his life is like except for it's filled with all of these distractions really and then when he gets to his office um he gets fired by his boss and from the sound of it it's just a little bit like he's just it it makes it hard to kind of root for him um because we don't have enough about his character to really know why he's not why he's like that. Cause there's nothing wrong with having his interests and having his eccentricities and everything. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that there's not enough to, to show us why he lets that, um, affect his livelihood. <laughs> um, because when Peckinpah is, is, uh, is yelling at him and firing him, it's, it's because, uh, like all the examples that he gives are all of the ex- uh, eccentricities that he has. It's not anything really about his performance. Um, I mean, he says that he keeps a bad ledger, but he's, he talks about how, oh, he likes the, uh, the, um, zither music. He likes, he drives a, like he, he says all of the things that make him kooky and weird, and that's why he's fired. Frankly, I think that maybe, Beavis could have a bit of a uh, a wrongful termination lawsuit on his hands, but he also says after he's fired, he says this is the sixth job that he's lost that year, and that just makes me find it really hard to sympathize with him as a character um, because he's just so out there and eccentric, which again is fine. That's completely okay, but his quirkiness and his, his weirdness is not weirdness, but his kooky, his, his kookiness is interfering with his livelihood. And I just kind of can't really, I found, I found a disconnect with the character because I can't really accept him as a, as a character I can latch onto when he is letting his personality affect his livelihood. And, and like you can be quirky and eccentric, but I mean, pay your bills, dude. Like really like that's, I don't know. It's weird. I don't, I don't podcast at work. Um, but it's, it's just, it, it's just a disconnect between me and the character. And that's, it made it, it made me not latch onto it at all. So after he's fired, we got, I kind of get the sense that, you know, after that, his, his car crashes and he, uh, he gets evicted and it, basically turns into Mr. Beavis and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Uh, for anyone that's read that book or, or seen the movie, I have, I only got like five minutes into that movie. I can, I can take it, but I loved the book as a kid, Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. But anyway, so we see this, this bad day unfold, but we don't necessarily get a reason why. I mean, not that there needs to be a reason why, but when the character is so lackluster, by by my standards um 
I kind of wish that there was some some reason why a curse or something 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 to make it more three uh to make it more to give it more dimension and give it more um context but as it is we just get this kind of uh, um this eccentric character having a bad day and then he uh he meets a guardian angel and then going back to the disappointment at, about not enough character moments for just a moment I, it is a it is a disservice. Like I'm I'm not maybe I'm being a little bit harsh on it because we do see that he is building a wooden ship for a kid that he knows or a kid in the neighborhood, one of the kids in the neighborhood. And that element, that kind of like he's he's friends with the kids, reminds me a little bit of Lou Bookman from One for the Angels. But even then, it's it's too brief. It's just we just get this hobby of him making this wooden ship, which is cool. You know, have your hobbies. Um, but it doesn't really inform much else about the character. That's about the meatiest piece of character, um, establishment that we get. And I don't know. And it's immediately followed by him carrying his box of, of stuff out of the office cause he's just gotten fired. And then he's, we get this piece of goofy, um, exaggerated physical comedy as he's reaching for the car door because he can't see that the car has, has, uh, moved and crashed and just like that, like the, the comedic beats in this episode just don't land with me because it, they just seem just kind of, I don't know, they seem a little forced. Yeah, it, it, just the comedy elements of the episode seemed seemed a little forced to me. And in a less goofy and comedic episode, actually, the uh, police officer that he speaks to who says um, says that uh, he's he's basically Beavis says like, Hey, do you want this uh, car? And he's like, no, I'm waiting for the 27, um, 27, whatever. Uh, but I'm waiting cause I, cause so I can get a good deal on the, uh, on the new model. Uh, I'm waiting for the new model so I can get a good deal on the 27. And I thought that was that. I mean, that's funny, but I think that it was competing with, um, the more physical and, and goofy comedy throughout it and in a in a less goofy and comedic episode that that police officer's sarcasm could have been a little more painful but in an episode with better comedic timing it could have landed a lot better and been a lot funnier um so there's if that makes any sense it's a weird juxtaposition like in one in one sense it could be uh it could be hurtful in a dramatic episode and funny in a com a comedic episode that with like better drawn comedy. But I think that speaks to kind of the overall kind of lackluster quality of this episode is that it's not like you can, it's kind of flimsy in that there's not much going on or there's not much to really latch onto. So you can kind of, you can reinterpret moments in this episode for different uh, tones because the episode doesn't really strike a good tone from, from the outset for me, at least as a viewer, I, I didn't really like it. And again, like I had that thought about, um, you know, do your work at work and, and you won't have this problem. There's nothing to tell us why he, uh, would, would mess up his work, work life and not just separate work and, and hobbies outside of work. And then I had that thought and then we're shown that he's evicted because he's six weeks six weeks late on rent. And I'm like, like in my notes, I just have, come on Beavis, come on, like get your stuff together. And there's nothing to really tell us like, 
it's just it just didn't connect with me. I keep saying that, but and I'm sorry for the repetition, but it's uh that's just what I keep coming back to. It's like he's going through the motions of these events that are going on in his life and it's just like I don't see why we should root for him because he should he's not as sympathetic a character as the show has proven it can be it can, it can have in the past and it's not putting in the effort to really make him that sympathetic because I mean we just see him lose his job and lose his car and lose his house or lose his uh, apartment but it's like two of those three things are things that you could um you could kind of construe as his own personal his own his own personal doing but I will say that when he is at the bar and he's drinking first or Orson Bean, he, he does a pretty good, a pretty good, uh, drunk performance. I, I think that was pretty good. And it, at that moment, it, it started to regain my interest when he, when he sees, uh, Hempstead in the mirror and then looks back and doesn't see him in the booth that, that started regaining my interest. And I really, I really liked the grammar correcting kind of running gag throughout the dialogue in that scene. I thought that was just a really, uh, I thought that was a treat and I thought it was clever and fun. And at that point I kind of started thinking maybe, maybe that's what this episode is simply it's maybe it's just fun and it's useless to assign a tone that isn't there or lament a lack of characterization when maybe the point of the episode may be to just be a laid back story about a goofy man and his guardian angel. So I kind of, came to terms with that a little bit, but it still isn't really, it still didn't really work for me because even if I, even if I, um, stop looking for a certain tone or if I, or if I stop looking for deep characterization and just accept it as kind of a fun episode, I mean, Orson Bean's performance is kind of, is kind of fun. Um, he, he seems to have fun with it, but the comedy beats don't really land with me and it still doesn't really do much for me um, on an intellectual level. And then when we get the introduction of J. Har- uh, J. Hardy Hempstead uh, as the guardian angel that, and maybe I'm going to hit this a little too hard here, but um, basically it's explained that one of Beavis's ancestors did something heroic that got him guardian angels for um, one member of his family, each generation and so now it's now it's uh James B.W. Beavis's uh turn. And as Hempstead is is uh explaining this to him there's a, a certain reluctance to to Beavis. And granted he's just had a crappy day, he's drunk, and maybe I'm reading too much into it or maybe I'm maybe I'm assigning too much criticism to something that isn't necessarily there that I'm maybe amplifying in in my head. But he has this little bit of reluctance to him. Like it's kind of this, um, incredulous quality to him where he is kind of questioning, like, like, really, are you, are you sure about that? Or are you, are you being, are you being straight with me? And I feel like that's kind of in conflict with what the character is because he's kind of this happy go lucky, optimistic, goofy character. And yeah, I mean, he's bombarded with a lot of hard to explain circumstances just in that conversation, um, like show it like the glass appearing in, in Hempstead's hand, the bartender not being able to see him, uh, the chandelier coming down or the light fixture. I don't know if it was a chandelier per se, but, um, images on the painting, uh, being his, being his ancestors and stuff. 
I would kind of think he would maybe be more happy and he does become more happy, but there's just this little bit of, um, of questioning that didn't really mesh well with the character for me and felt kind of like the plot needed it more than the character, uh, more than it serviced the character. And then again, the character is pretty flimsy in, in and of, in and of himself. And I'm probably just a, spending too much time harping on something that quite frankly, probably isn't even there, but, um, but it still kind of didn't ring that scene didn't really ring that true with me. But then we get the, uh, but then Hempstead explains that he can let Beavis relive his day, which that is a concept I absolutely love. Like, I mean, it's Groundhog Day. It's, it's, it's a really cool pseudo time travel esque, uh, concept. And, and I really like it and I love it as a concept. And I was, I was, again, that was starting to regain my interest before. And now I'm almost back like a hundred percent on board, but then they leave the bar and there's this really weird effect shot where, uh, Hempstead leaves. He kind of, it's almost like an, like apparates out of the bar or doesn't apparate, but he's just glides through the bar and the way it's filmed is just like, it's obvious. Like they filmed, I don't know how, how necessarily they did it, but they filmed it and filmed, uh, Hempstead, uh, going through the doorway and then they filmed, um, Beavis running into the door, but and then they kind of put him on, on top of each other. So the quality of the, of the shot of, or the quality of, of Hempstead in the scene is just, is really jarring and it doesn't, everything is so slow and, and it's, you can see what's coming a mile away. It's, it's another comedic bit that didn't run, uh, that didn't, that didn't land with me. And it's a little too, slapstick for for my taste in that context not that there's anything wrong with slapstick comedy it works great if you if you commit to it and you can do uh you can do it justice and and service it well but um it didn't it didn't really work for for me and that effect shot while i appreciate the technique used and 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 how how it must have been really uh interesting at the time to see that but it just, it doesn't age well at all. And, uh, and it left me wanting. So as Beavis is changing or as Beavis is going through his, uh, redo of the day, um, the angel is changing him. He changes his clothes. Um, that's kind of a weird, um, sentence. I'm sorry. Um, he changes his appearance to be, uh, like more businesslike and, and less, kooky and weird. Uh, he does that. He changes the, uh, he changes his car. He, uh, Beavis shows like he shows Beavis that he is changing him, uh, into someone who can, who can, uh, be a different person essentially. And as a result, Beavis no longer stands out. The greeting in the hallway after he gets, after he picks up the dog is more normal and bland and just unaffecting. Um, whereas at the beginning of the episode, the woman's like, Oh, Hey, Mr. Beavis. Uh, now she's like, hi, good morning. And then when he picks up the dog, the dog doesn't even really like him. Um, he tries to play with the kids. They won't play with him. He tries to get his, you know, free apple. And the, the guy with the cart screams at him. Um, and then the car changes and that's, that's kind of the not breaking point, but that's kind of the, one of the big things that Beavis takes issue with. And, um, he's like, are you sure that this fits and everything? And then, uh, I, I do, I do appreciate the, the Ben Hur reference that, um, Hempstead says that he's, he said, I've, uh, he said something like he's driven chariots and he's the guy responsible for Ben Hur winning. I thought that was kind of, kind of funny. 
and when we get to when we get to the office when when Beavis new Beavis uh, gets to the office. I do like the visual of his desk being completely clear and uniform with the other desks in the room. It's, I think that that was just a good vis- visual thing and it's not, I wouldn't say that it's subtle cause it's not subtle. It's, I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty blatant there. And even Beavis even references it when he gets there. He says that it, the desk desk looks naked. I just think as a visual cue at the beginning, I, I like it a little more. And I think that it would have been kind of cool if, if, there were more visual cues like that. Um, I mean, not that the, not to say that there aren't, but I mean, I just kind of think it would have been kind of cooler if they could have done a little bit more, injected a little more subtlety, even though the, the desk, the clear desk wasn't necessarily the most subtle thing, but that's another fault of the episode itself is that it's not overall. Everything is kind of at surface level. There's not really much going on underneath it. Um, everything is pretty much spelled out in in service to um what i assume was meant to be just a kind of fun enjoyable episode with comedy that didn't really land with me and i thought it was kind of funny that the new beavis uh his boss peck and paw comes out and just announces to everyone that he's got a ra- he's got a raise and he's been doing great work it's like i just thought that was kind of funny cuz like in a workplace if a boss comes out and just like oh hey mr beavis you uh, you got you get a raise like, hey, all coworkers, look at your coworker. He just got a raise. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be spending more money to employ him for to do the same job that you guys are doing. Um, yeah, I just, I just thought that that was, I, I thought that was kind of goofy. Um, but also, I like I've seen this episode a few times now, and I have to say, the second time around, I honestly kind of dozed off right as he started doing his his redo of the day. Um, because I just was not engaged with it. And that I think is, a, is the biggest um, stumbling block or, or the biggest critique I can have, or the harshest words I can have for this episode is that the moment where the episode transitions into what I am more interested in than anything going on in this episode. The fact that he, that he can has a chance to redo his bad day. The moment that that happens on my second viewing, I start to doze off. I don't think that bodes well for my review of this episode overall it's just it just didn't work for me but that's not to say that there's i've i've said that there are some things that are that i like about it. it's not that i hate this episode or, at all and i do enjoy i i do think that it leads to an interesting moment when um beavis is talking to hempstead he he says he's going to go out and get some air and he's talking to talking to the angel and um the angel is just as confused as Beavis or, or I guess uncomfortable would be the closest word I can use for it because like he, he asks him, he's like, what is it you want? I got you, um, like I got you a $10 raise, which is more like the, it's the absolute most that even I can get you. And he says that he's used to Beavis's with big dreams and conquerors. And, and he goes through like a bunch of, of different examples of people that are like really big and, and successful Beavis's. And the, what it comes down to is that Beavis just wants to be himself. Um, and it kind of makes me wonder if part of the episode is about kind of being set in your ways is, I mean, maybe that's one side, like one, maybe a more cynical side to read it, uh, or way to read it because, or I mean, another way to look at it because my big stumbling block with it is that he can be normal. I don't understand why he not normal, but he can be his regular self 
but I don't see why that has to conflict with his livelihood and, and his happiness in his life. Cause he seems happy. He just lost his job and car and his, and his home in one day. It's just, I don't see what the issue is with it. But again, it comes back to the whole thing with about conformity and being true to yourself and all that, which is, which is a fine, again, it's a, it's a fine theme to play with, but it could have been done a lot better. And so we get this kind of, obviously they change back to, to Beavis being the oddball character. And <laughs> I do, I do like the kind of way that it, uh, circles back and, and we see them standing outside of the office and they're kind of prepping, uh, Beavis to go in. And Hempstead says like, are you sure you want this? Or I, I don't know if he confirms that he wants it, but he explains that he's going to go in there and get fired again. And Beavis is like, yeah, you know, that's my life. I like it. Um, and there's a little bit of an endearing quality to Beavis in that moment. Cause he's, he's accepting of, of what his life is and how much it's, uh, not conducive to, a good livelihood, <laughs> but, um, he still accepts it. And I do like that we get a recreation. I don't know if it was, I think it was a recreation. I don't think they just re reuse the footage from earlier in the episode. Either one would have worked, but I like that we get a different context for him coming into the office and, and being fired. Um, and I like that he reacts the same way. It's not this, like he has the same, like, Oh, okay. It's kind of plays with it as a, this is very uh, loose, but it's kind of plays with the time travel aspects of it. Like when you go back and rewatch it, when you see Beavis walk in the first time before he gets fired, you can kind of imagine like, Oh, he and he and Hempstead were just talking outside. And um, that's not, I don't think that's intentional as a storytelling device, but I think that, that works well for me um, <laughs> to play with it, to find something to grasp on onto in this episode. And yeah, that, those are my thoughts on Mr. Beavis. And, um, the only thing I really have for trivia is that, um, aside from it being a script that was going to be the pilot for a series with Burgess Meredith is that this episode is, um, like I mentioned in the start of my review, um, it features the blinking eye opening sequence. And apparently this is the first, or uh, this is one of only four episodes to have that opening. um, and if I'm understanding the trivia correctly, uh, the actual opening narration that, that like Serling says in it is, uh, what's used, like the audio is what's used for every episode throughout seasons two and three. So that's pretty cool. Um, I'm looking forward to that and I'm going to get there soon because we're almost done with season one. Um, so in closing, Mr. Beavis is, I don't know. It's kind of a nice episode, but it just really didn't do much for me. There was a lack of character development that really early on that really um, made it so that I couldn't really latch on to the character. And, and there was more, more silly antics and quirky eccentricities rather than actual character motivations and, and things like that. And it was, I think a big fault of it is that it's coming right after a passage for trumpet, which plays with a lot of the sim, a lot of similar aspects. It's a character who is, whose lifestyle is not, um, you know, making them happy or not making them happy. Not, that's not what I'm saying. Um, their life choices are conducive to their livelihood. Um, with, uh, with Joey crown, it's him, his, him drinking a lot is not, you know, 
and his just life is, is not up to par and he can't get a job playing the trumpet to get money at the club because he's drinking all the time. And then here with Mr. Beavis, he's um, an eccentric who apparently doesn't do his job well or anything. And it's, it's um, it interferes with like, he could be successful, but it would be at the cost of what he is. And both of these characters have this spiritual journey where they speak to a spiritual being who um, helps them show what they need to do or, or something. I don't know. I'm maybe stretching a little bit there, but there are some similarities too. And I think that the quality and the craft that went into a passage for trumpet, um, really lessened, really affected my, uh, ability to enjoy Mr. Beavis because there wasn't as much care put into this episode. Um, not that they, are the same necessarily because they're completely different tones. But if the care that went into the creating um, Joey Crown's journey and a passage for trumpet went into the comedy stylings and the, and the kooky nature and tone of, of Mr. Beavis, maybe I would have cared a little bit more about it. And that'll do it for my review of Mr. Beavis. And before we move on to this week's bonus review, here's a highlight from episode 179 of The Obsessive Viewer, which of course is a podcast, a weekly movie and TV podcast that I host with my friends Mike and Tiny over at obsessiveviewer.com. Also, I'm curious how J.K. Rowling is going to do as screenwriter because it's it's a script that she's writing. I'm sure um, she'll do it. I think she's got this writing thing down I, pretty good. <laughs> she she does she she does it pretty well. You but, know, she she was she worked on eight films with the Harry Potter series. So that's I, I, true. I, I yeah. feel like she probably has a grasp on it. Yeah, I I, I agree. I mean, it's just different writing a novel. Versus, probably. Not that uh, I would have experience. I haven't written right anything. Ever. Right. And, of course, you can find The Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at ObsessiveViewer.com. And you can find the episode you just heard a clip from at ObsessiveViewer.com slash OV179. All right, so my bonus review for this week on Anthology is the 1957 science fiction film The 27th Day, directed by William Asher, who also directed Mr. Beavis, and written by John Mantley that was based on his novel, um, here's a quick plot description of the 27th day. Five individuals from five nations, including the superpowers USA, USSR, and China, suddenly find themselves on an alien spacecraft. An alien gives each a container holding capsules. No power on Earth can open a given container except a mental command from the person on whom it's given. Each person has been provided with the power of life and death. Any of these individuals has the capability to instantaneously launch the capsules to whatever coordinates he or she chooses, and each capsule will then eradicate all human life within a 3,000-mile radius of its designated location. And that is a terrible plot description because it doesn't go into the fact that the alien entity that abducts them gives them 27 days to essentially, it's an ultimatum to an extent of um, giving humanity 27 days to achieve kind of world peace because it's in the middle of the cold war and it's um we're humanity's at risk for destroying itself and the planet and the aliens need the planet to survive essentially and so this starts out with um the characters getting kind of abducted and and put together on the spaceship uh for a brief introductory scene and it's 
you know, the, the scenes in the opening of the characters getting abducted, first of all, we, we don't see the aliens. It's just a silhouette of the, of an alien, um, in that first abduction because, uh, uh, we just, I mean, it's a, it's a creepy entity. We, we don't see it. We only see the shadow. And then we just get the, get the words from, from the alien saying, come with me before abducting the character. And I, I like that quite a bit but there's kind of it felt like there was too much time spent actually abducting the aliens i mean in the grand scheme of things it's maybe eight minutes at most probably less than that actually probably five to six but it just kind of got repetitive like i understand that it's needed to set it up and everything but when they don't have a variety of different ways to abduct them it's it just made me kind of uh it faltered my interest a little bit then we get the reveal, like we we actually see the alien when they get the, get on the spacecraft, and I mean the alien just looks human. So I'm kind of like it. Just, it made me laugh because, like, they went through the trouble of um, they went through the trouble of just showing a shadowy figure that looks alien, um, and then nope, they just look exactly like humans. Um, that must have been a budget constraint or something. I'm not sure. Also, all the characters hear the alien speak in in their in their language. So, um, it, it, kind of in the way that um, in people are like all over, um, the astronaut could hear like couldn't like there was an internal interpretation between the two species um, that were speaking, and it also kind of reminded me of Doctor Who, where you know the TARDIS can can uh, make you speak anything. So the way that it's set up is that the aliens have recruited these uh, people as representatives of the human race, and they're both—they're all given individual capsules for this for this um, weapon that could wipe out all of humanity. And I mean, it's it's a really really interesting and intriguing concept and setup, um, and kind of terrifying when you think of it in terms of the. Uh, state of the world, um, either back in 1957 or today, even, um, everything is always volatile. Everyone has different ideologies. Everyone's at conflict with everyone. And it's just, this is the height of the cold war or this is, this is in the middle of the cold war. And it's terrifying to think that, okay, these different representatives from, and they're not necessarily like, they aren't world, world leaders that are abducted. They're just ordinary citizens. So the alien even says like, you can turn it over to your government or you can do this or that you can do it with, do with it as you choose. But essentially the ultimatum is that they can set it off at any time and they have 27 days to, to establish world peace essentially. Otherwise nuclear warfare is going to, is going to destroy humanity <laughs> in the context of the, of the movie the logic makes sense, but when I'm saying it out loud, it doesn't really follow that track that well, but, um, it's a really interesting setup. And I like that the, all the representatives are just regular people. And then there's kind of a wrinkle, um, a wrinkle attitude or, or, uh, some more conflict to it. Cause that alone is, is a pretty interesting concept. But then we get the alien actually, uh, broadcasts across every radio and television in, on the planet, um, and announces, Hey, there are these five people on the planet who have this, who each have this weapon that could destroy all of, all of humanity. These are their names. These are where they live or these are their locations. Um, yeah, go nuts. And so that makes this, that's a really interesting, 
um, wrinkle to add to it because now they are the subjects of nationwide or worldwide manhunts and, and there's so much confusion and fear and paranoia and, and, uh, conflict and everything. And then it turns into an analog to, to the arms race because the, uh, I think it's the, the Rus- the Russians get, get the capsule from their, from their representative. And then, um, the Americans have theirs and it's kind of, it's, it's the cold war, uh, only with, um, alien tech. What I, what I really latched onto about this was that the different the different representatives chosen by the aliens they're all scattered across the globe and they all kind of have their own thing. Like I think the the Russian guy um, turns it over to to the government to his government and then they ask him for information about it and then they're he lies to them and and he doesn't tell them the truth and some stuff goes on uh, with him. That's that's really kind of the strongest point of the of the movie for me, I think. And then a couple of them kind of team up also on another and another subplot. So there are makings here where where they could have some really interesting dynamics. And and I hate to say this because it seems like such a such a reductive thing to say, I guess, that I would like to see this set up this this concept, this story adapted um with a bigger budget more mainstream kind of thing uh mainstream backing essentially because this is just kind of like a somewhat of a of a little bit of a cheesy b b movie um the way it is but i think that there's some meat here that it could be a really um intense and interesting bigger budgeted science fiction film like if they remade it today i think it it, it could kind of work really well um, there's, there's a little bit of dialogue here and then I can kind of start winding down cause I don't want to get into spoilers here, but there's, a, uh, two of the characters kind of, uh, team up and they're, they're kind of on the run together or they're in hiding together. And, um, one of them, like it's John, their characters are named John and Eve and John, uh, is kind of t- telling Eve about, uh, the position that they're in and says that they could potentially be lynched. And Eve says, I forgot how easily hate comes alive. And then John says, people hate because they fear and they fear anything they don't understand, which is almost everything. And I really liked that, that piece of dialogue, but it also kind of says a lot about, or it kind of informs a lot about what type of movie it is. Cause it's kind of preachy and overall it's kind of on the nose. And I just, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't dislike it at all. I'm glad I bought it on DVD and I have it. Um, cause it's, I mean, it's a, it's an enjoyable movie and the characters I referenced, John and Eve, they're probably the most human characters, uh, cause they're kind of confined to tight quarters, uh, cause they're in hiding and there, there's this, uh, chemistry between them that I really like. And I think that it counterbalances the, the thrilling intense, or not thrilling intensity really, but the suspense of the different characters that like the Russian character who gave the, gave the weapon over and, uh, some of the other characters and, and what they're going through throughout the, uh, throughout the movie. So I think that was a good counterbalance to that. And yeah, I'll, I'll end my review there in case you guys want to go ahead and uh, check it out. But, 
Um, it's called the 27th day. It's not available on YouTube or any of the streaming services. And it's not even available digitally. Like usually I, I can go on to like Google play or I can go to, um, Amazon prime and, and like rent the movie at least, or even buy a digital copy. But it's just not available digitally anywhere. So that's a shame, but it is available on DVD. There's a standalone DVD of it for like 12 bucks, I think. Uh, but if you want more bang for your buck or if you're so desperate to um, watch this movie um, for like eight bucks, you can get um, one of those compilation DVDs of six different um, vintage sci-fi movies that includes it. Once again, I'll have the link in the show notes and everything here. And yeah, that'll do it for my review of the 27th day and also for episode 28 of anthology. And, uh, thank you guys for listening next week on the podcast. I am going to be reviewing the after hours, which is episode 34 of the twilight zones first season. And for the bonus review, I have no idea what I'm going to review, uh, next on it. Um, uh, to be honest, I haven't even watched the after hours yet. I, I think I, there's a slim chance that this might be one of the only episodes that I, uh, saw a bit of in my life before this podcast started. Um, so, so that'll be interesting to see if I'm right. Cause I have some memories of seeing like one of the, uh, I think it was either the new year's day or the 4th of July marathon, like years, but like probably at this point, um, 15 years, 15 years ago, probably. But I have a very vivid memory of, of one of the things that I saw. And I think that it might be in the after hours, but we'll see. Um, anyway, uh, so look for that next week. And, uh, also, like I said last week, um, episode 32 of the podcast is going to be my season one wrap up, um, recap episode, what have you. And I'm asking you guys that, um, listen, uh, go ahead and email me your thoughts on season one overall of the twilight zone. And I'm asking for you to send me your favorite moments of season one, your favorite endings, your favorite overall episodes of season one, and also your least favorite moments, endings and episodes of season one. And I'll compile all the emails or any emails that I get into and I'll incorporate it into the episode, which I'm hoping to get Brandon from submitted for your approval on for it. Um, I should actually probably message him and, (laughs) uh, work out the logistics but anyway um having said all that that's it for episode 28 of anthology and i thank you for listening and i'll check you guys out next week thank you for listening to anthology presented by obsessiveviewer.com you can find more episodes at anthologypod.com And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please take a few minutes to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. The more reviews I get, the higher the show will be ranked in iTunes search results, making it easier for people to discover it and grow the podcast. Of course, you can always email me your thoughts and feelings about the show to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. You can also tweet me at obsessiveviewer like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer. 
a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Mike and Tiny. Also check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessiveviewer and check out obsessivebooknerd.com, our sister site for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious... Check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.